0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for this day, another day we can spend in your presence. And uh, I'm going to learn from your word now, Lord. We have taken the time to worship you and to know you in that way. Now we pray that you would take your word and by your Holy Spirit, let it penetrate our hearts. And help us, Father, to grow more to be like your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome back to our study in Second Samuel. We're going to do all 33 verses of chapter 14. But don't worry, I will give you a bathroom break in about 90 minutes. So we'd better get started. If you're new here at Calvary Chapel, I am kidding. We're not going to go. Uh, look at verse 1 with me, if it's on there. So Joab the son of Zeruah perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Chapters 11 through 14 of 2 Samuel have taken us through about 10 years or so. It has been about a decade since David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. And so for 10 years, the effects of sin has embroiled David's family and kingdom in more trouble than they ever faced from any external enemies. The consequences of David's sins, declared by Nathan the prophet in chapter 12, are now beginning to be felt. Joab knew his king very well and recognized the signs of David yearning for his exiled son. But David is in a bind. David the father still loved his son. But David the king couldn't give the impression that it was okay to take the law into your own hands. Otherwise, the whole kingdom would devolve into anarchy. As head of the army, Joab was probably also concerned that Israel have a crown prince ready just in case something happened to David. But Absalom couldn't come home unless David gave permission, and David would not give permission until he was convinced it was the right thing to do. Joab also saw David's ongoing antagonism towards Absalom as a problem. Since Absalom was now the heir to the throne, his banishment from the kingdom would certainly cause problems when succession became an issue. But I think that there is more to it than that. Why is Joab so committed to restoring Absalom to David? I suggest it is because he wanted to make sure that his own future was also secure. After all, following the murder of Abner way back in chapter 3, David had said to Joab, Cursed be you and your house. Leprosy be on you forevermore. Therefore, perhaps, Joab was trying to butter up Absalom, the heir apparent, by bringing him out of exile. Or it could also be that the shrewd Joab could see the possibility of a civil war if this thing with Absalom wasn't resolved. And so he finds a wise woman from Tekoa. This is the same place that the prophet Amos comes from. I want to at least say his name, because at the rate we are going, unless I live to be about 130, I probably won't be the one teaching from that book that bears his name. Joab tells her to put on morning apparel. Now that doesn't mean morning clothes like early morning, so don't think of a house coat and pink fuzzy slippers. It means like a funeral outfit. And then he told her not to anoint herself with oil. In those days, that was a really big deal. You see, they didn't have access to bath and showers the way that we do today. And so they would put up oil to cover up the funk. I guess it meant something entirely different back then if someone told you that you weren't anointed. Look at verse 4. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field. And there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed and we will destroy the heir also so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth now verse 3 told us that Joab has concocted this whole thing and we all know that David is a sucker for a good story nathan's story about the ewe lamb touched the heart of david the shepherd And this story of the warring family will touch the heart of David, the father. She tells David that her two sons had an argument in the field, and the one killed the other. Sounds a whole lot like Cain and Abel, doesn't it? The other relatives want to slay the guilty son, and so avenge his brother's blood, but she is opposing them. The woman gives four mitigating factors. The first was that, as she described it, the death was not premeditated murder. The surviving brother had not cunningly planned to kill his brother. It had happened in the heat of an argument. And even God's law allows for mercy in such a case and makes a distinction between murder and manslaughter. The second point she made was that the family was not really interested in justice. They just wanted to get their hands on the inheritance. That's why she added the phrase, they would destroy the heir also. The third argument in her appeal was really just a frank plea for compassion. Her surviving son, in her words, was my only ember that is left. She is saying he is the only remaining source of light and warmth left in my life. And her final point was that her husband's name and posterity would be eliminated if the only surviving son were to die. Verse 8, please. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. David says, you have your wish. I'll take care of it. But the woman says, let the king be guiltless and let all the blame fall on me in this matter. Her meaning was, if the king is concerned that there may be something wrong in allowing this bloodshed to go unpunished, let the guilt fall on me and my family and not on the king. She was taking full responsibility for any possible omission or distortion in her story that might have given the king reason to be cautious, which is a bit rich if you think about it, seeing the whole tale was fictional. David then assures her once again that he will take care of everything. Look at verse 12. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. In verse 12, the New American Standard translates the phrase, another word, as just, a word. Now some Bible scholars think they got it wrong as they say it is impossible for a woman just to speak one word. But I want you to know that here at Calvary Chapel we don't believe such things. Backpedaling. In all seriousness she reminds us of one of the parables of Jesus who told us to approach the King of Heaven the same way where the widow was looking for protection from her opponent and the gist of that parable is we should keep coming to the Lord until he gives us an answer but what does verse 14 allude to well when you spill water on the ground in the Middle East the water is quickly absorbed by the soil and once it's spilled it is now gone and the point she is making is this David your opportunity to reconcile with your son is very fragile and finite If either of you die, you will lose forever the opportunity to reconcile that relationship. So she asked, how much longer will the king wait before he sends for his son? After all, life is brief, and when life ends, it's like water spilled into the earth, and it cannot be recovered. Verse 15, now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maid servant, For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Well, the woman now had David in a corner. If he agreed to protect the guilty son, who he did not even know, how much more obligated was he to protect his own son, whom he loved? But why is David caught here? Listen carefully. He is caught because he is giving advice according to his own reasoning instead of the word of God. Let me give you some great advice. When you give advice to somebody give them the scriptures because quite frankly a lot of times our opinions can have a fleshly element to them when people come to us in crisis they don't need our opinion they need the truth of God's Word and don't think that you don't ever counsel every time someone comes to you at church or at a restaurant and ask you a live question you have at that point entered the realm of counseling so please be careful and please be wise. Verse 18. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. I thought it was funny in verse 18 that the roles have been reversed. Now the woman is giving David permission to speak. If you're married, you know what that's like. I mean... They let you think that you're in charge, but, well, let's move on. The woman from Tekoa had delivered a brilliant and manipulative speech. She had confronted the king with the issue of the moment. He had not silenced her. He had listened. She and Joab had made a great team. All that remained was to see how the king would react to all of this. Verse 21, and the king said to Joab, all right, I've granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. What David hoped to accomplish is far from clear, just as it was probably also unclear to him. The situation was just terribly messy. Joab had done what David, as the custodian of justice in the land, should have seen to. But David cannot bring himself to treat Absalom either as a murderer, and therefore have him executed, or innocent, and therefore welcome him back. Now this is conjecture, but perhaps David's scheme was designed to actually avoid the issue. If Absalom could be kept away from the king, the king could once again avoid the difficult task of deciding what should be done about his son. Look at verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons, and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Our attention now turns to Absalom. Absalom will dominate the next four chapters of 2 Samuel. We will see that Joab had been right to fear the terrible consequences that came from Absalom's banishment. We are going to see that Absalom also had his own schemes. It says there was absolutely no blemish in him. Can any of us in this room say that? But he certainly didn't look like Abraham Lincoln, who once said, if I were two-faced, do you think I would be wearing this one? You're a little slow. (laughs) So think of Brad Pitt on steroids, I guess. I mean, is Brad Pitt still a thing? My pop culture references may be a bit dated. He may be fat and bald for all I know. But I bet that if Absalom were alive today, he would be taking so many selfies that his battery would die halfway through the day. And here's a fun fact I dug up while studying for this. In 2015, more people died from taking selfies than from shark attacks. Of course, Absalom was so conceited, he would probably take a selfie during his shark attack. He would be like, well, this shark certainly knows a good meal when he sees it. But seriously, we should be a little concerned at this point with the emphasis on Absalom's appearance. Remember Saul? It was said of him, there was not a man among the people of Israel that was more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. So it is hardly encouraging to find Absalom reminding us of King Saul. But look at verse 26. It says, every year he cut his hair and it weighed 200 shekels, which is about three or four pounds. Fabio, eat your heart out. Google him if you're under 30. Now, no matter how long you grow your hair, it's not going to weigh four pounds. So what does this verse mean? What we have to consider is back then some men would put powder in their hair. And the old Jewish commentators tell us that Absalom would put gold dust in his hair. And thus, when he would go out in his chariot, like we're going to see next week in the next chapter, the sun would glisten and reflect off of his hair and make him even more attractive, if that was even possible. And so, this hippie got a haircut once a year, whether he needed it or not. As someone who has a growing bald spot on the back of their head, the Connie perversely loves to point out to people. That kind of hair just makes you sick, doesn't it? They do say there are three kinds of hair, middle-parted, side-parted, and D-parted. Now, I don't have any problem with a man who wants to cut his hair once a year, but I do have a problem with men who weigh their hair after they cut it because there's just something wrong with a guy like that. I don't want to follow into battle a man who is so vain and so proud that when you talk to him in the midst of bullets flying, he's always turning to show you his best side. And now while the massive hair may remind us of Samson, as his actions shortly are going to do also, his preoccupation with his magnificent hair verges on narcissism. He was very proud of his hair. But that point of pride is also going to be his point of destruction that we're going to see in a later sermon. And although we know that David is not perfect, he is referred to as a man after God's own heart. He was a valiant war, warrior who, for the most part, was prudent in spirit. Now let's compare that to Absalom. What are his major qualities in life? Well, he's good-looking and that's about it the sad thing is the only weighty thing about him is his hair we're going to see that his hair makes him very popular with the people now David has been king for 31 years and is around 61 years old at this point which doesn't sound nearly as old to me as it used to by the way the thing is this new generation isn't attracted to David with his old school character and his archaic values but they are attracted to a good-looking guy who is popular, maybe most importantly, has great hair. However, these limitations didn't hinder the expansion of Absalom's popularity, for the people loved him and praised him. The fact that he had plotted the murder of his half-brother and had proved his guilt by running away meant very little to them. For people must have their idols, and what better idol than a young, handsome prince? Lack of character was unimportant. What really mattered was status, good looks, and wealth. In contemporary language, Absalom had movie star looks and skid row values. And yet the people envied him, and they admired him. Times have not changed much, have they? Absalom's three sons are mentioned in verse 27 to complete the account of his family. But they are beside the point in that they are not even named. Indeed, they must have died young because we're going to see in chapter 18 that it is said that Absalom has no sons. He also had a beautiful daughter that he named after his sister. In this way, we are gently reminded of the tragic violence that stands behind the story that is about to unfold. Absalom never forgot his sister, Tamar. Verse 28, And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Five years have now passed since they had fled on the day of that fateful feast. But Absalom has grown impatient with the humiliation of the exclusion with any contact with his father. It was time now for Absalom to do something about the situation. After two years of waiting, in which he summoned Joab two separate times and been ignored, Absalom has decided that drastic action is now necessary. He commanded his servants to set Joab's barley crop on fire. This is the Old Testament equivalent to unfriending someone on Facebook. He reminds us once again of Samson, who captured the attention of the Philistines with a similar trick. Well, this did get the general's attention. Verse 32, please. And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. The situation was intolerable to Absalom. Either he was guilty, in which case he would have been better off in gesture, Or he was innocent, in which case his exclusion from the king's presence was inexcusable. The king had allowed him to return. So was he innocent or was he guilty? The king cannot have it both ways. And so David finally allows Absalom to see his face. Father and son were now together after five years of separation. We notice, however, the text says Absalom came to the king not to David or his father. He approached like a servant rather than a son. There was no weeping as one might expect at such a a reunion after years of estrangement. There were not even any spoken words. At least none are recorded. This was an awkward meeting. Even the king's kiss looks more royal and official than it does paternal. But there is no record that Absalom was repentant and he had sought his father's forgiveness. Father and son were together again, but it was a fragile truce and not a real peace. Reconciliation is made, but it is too late. For five years, bitterness had been growing in the heart of Absalom, and we are going to see the effects of that in the following weeks. As we close, I want to make this applicable to us this morning. I want to close with a question. What use or benefit is there living in the kingdom of heaven if we can't see the king's face? I want to submit a thought to you this morning that is also a challenge. I wonder if this is an accurate glimpse into many of our lives. We attend church somewhat faithfully, we are in the same neighborhood and vicinity of the king. We bear the benefits of having the name of the king, and yet, How many of us have not seen the face of the king in years? We sit through worship service after worship service and even participate by letting religious words roll off of our tongues. Yet we remain in the outer outer court and never enter the Holy of Holies where we can peer in and be affected by the face of God. I wonder how long it's been since you've encountered him. Listen, I get it. All of us have obstacles that try to hinder us from seeing the king's face. What keeps you out of his presence? Is it comfort zone, pride, anger, pain, people? Maybe it's past experiences, tradition, religion. Or could it be grudges, laziness, apathy, a spouse, or even friends? What is it that keeps us from going hard after God? What is it that keeps us from pressing in? If you haven't seen the king's face in a while, I know of no better starting point than partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Use this time to inspect your life. And if you are willing to bow down in humility, I can promise you the king will extend his scepter and welcome you into his presence. Father, search our hearts. Like David said, search my heart and know me, O God, and show me if there is any iniquity in me. Do that for us this morning before we even take of the Lord's Supper. If there are things that we need to get right, let us get them right first. Father, we are so thankful that it is by your Spirit that we can live because we know that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It is truly the best way to live a human life.